Great. Thanks, Kim. Can we thank Kim this morning? Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for coming out on Memorial Day weekend. It's really good to have you here. And we are in a series called What If? And this series is based on two ideas. The first idea is this. What if everything Jesus said and did was true? What if we lived our lives like we actually believed they were true? And secondly, what if we took Jesus' invitation seriously to come and follow him, to take part in his kingdom work? What if we really took that, took Jesus at his word? What would that look like in our lives? This morning, we're going to take a look at the 12 disciples a bit more closely. And this is really the most, I think, eclectic bunch, the most unlikely bunch of world changers ever assembled. And we're going to look at their story this morning. But before we do, would you take a moment to bow your heads? And let's center our hearts as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your presence among us this morning. And God, would you open up our hearts? Would you open up our minds to receive what you have uniquely for us today, God? Would your presence fill this place? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in about two weeks, my children, um, Austin and Kylie, will move up to 7th and 6th grade. And they are right on the precipice of having a social life. They're like right there. They're right on the edge of caring about um, what they're going to do for the weekends and who they're going to spend their time with. They're right on that edge. I want you to think back to when you were in 7th grade. Do you remember what you like to do on a Friday night? Think back to seventh grade. What did you like to do on a Friday night? For me, where you would have found me on a Friday night is roller skating, which sounds really weird as I say that. Where you find me at Skateland USA. There it is. (laughs) Skateland USA, the big roller skate up front. I hang out there with my friends all the time, and a typical Friday would look like this. I'd show on up to Skateland USA, meet my buddies, we'd check in, we'd find a locker, change out of our shoes, put on our skates, and I immediately went to the concession stand where I'd had my first of three Slurpees. I'd take that Slurpee and skate right on over to the Miss Pac-Man video game and play till I ran out of quarters. And then my friends and I would skate around. Well, there was this one fateful night, I would have been much better staying home. And I'll never forget it. The lights flashed, the music blared, and while my friends and I were having fun goofing around as we skated, the DJ said what he always said halfway through the skate session. The music came down and he said, now it's time for couples skate. Young men, go find your ladies. And immediately, the guys would go to one end of the roller rink and the girls to the other. And there was this one girl in our class that my friends, all the guys just loved, and her name was Jenny. She was a a beauty to behold. And all of us guys were intimidated by her. No guy would ever think to ask her to to go out, much less skate a dance. But that particular night, I was feeling kind of bold. And I told all my friends, I go, I'm going to ask Jenny to skate with me. And they go, no, you're not. You don't have the courage. There's no way you would do that. There's no way. And then my heart started pounding because I knew I was like, I had to commit now to doing it. And I'll never forget, I just go, okay. And I started skating, and there's this big abyss where no one was in the middle. And I was like skating back and forth towards Jenny. And I like twirl around. I use my brake. And with all the masculinity I had, 
I said, how you doing? <laughs> then I extended my hand and I said, Jenny, would you like to skate with me? And it's not as much that she said no, really. <laughs> but it's how she said it. As though she would have rather have eaten a bug than roller skate with me. And she just looked right at me and said, no. And I received that no, just standing there. And after what felt like forever, I just started skating backwards. <laughs> Picked up my Slurpee, found a bench, and I crawled under it. And I wanted to die. Utter rejection. Oh, the pain of that rejection, I can still feel it. But let me tell you, I got revenge many years later because I met Allison, my wife, and she's much hotter than Jenny ever was. <laughs> so I got revenge in the end. I imagine all of us obviously know what it feels like to be rejected, don't we? We know the sting of rejection. But at the same time, each of us know what it feels like to be accepted. To genuinely be accepted by a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse Every playground game, every sporting event, even at work when we get a promotion, we know the joy of what it feels like to be accepted. And I believe with all my heart that each of us are continually asking two questions subconsciously in our life all the time. And these are the questions. Number one, am I good enough? Am I good enough? And will I be accepted. Today's message is about the sting of rejection being swallowed up by the power of God's amazing and redeeming call on our lives. In fact, as we go through this message today, as you saw in your bulletin, there's an insert. You can follow along um, the message with the bulletin. The Bible verses are there. They'll also be on the screen. Or if you brought your Bibles, you can open up those as well, that as well this morning. Um, we're going to end up in Luke, but we want to start this morning in Matthew chapter 4. And what we're going to see is the moment where Jesus calls his disciples. And we're going to see something pretty extraordinary that takes place. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. And it says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You know, the calling of the disciples might be a familiar story to many of us, but I believe it's a foreign experience to most of us. I don't know about you, but when I've seen people come to faith in Jesus, it never quite happens this way, the way that Jesus called them. It's almost like this is a movie where Jesus is played by young Charlton Heston, very young Charlton Heston, and he approaches the, the water and he sees the disciples off in the distance. And with a very dramatic voice, he says, come, follow me. And the disciples see this, drop their nets, and almost like zombies re reply, we will follow you. And they drop everything 
in an instant and leave and follow him. It amazes me it happens that quickly. That they made such an important decision to leave their family so quickly and go and follow him. Have you ever stopped long enough to read this story and ask why? Why did it happen this way? I mean, that hasn't been my experience with Jesus. In fact, it's almost like Jesus mastered the Jedi mind trick. You remember that scene in the first Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi's with C-3PO and R2-D2? And he's helping them escape. And the stormtroopers turn the corner and they see the droids that they're looking for. And before they can do anything, Obi-Wan looks at them and says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And one stormtrooper turns to the other one and says, these are not the droids we're looking for. And they wander away. It's as though Jesus overrides their freedom. That he overrides their security. You know, I think theologians, the smart teachers in our world, often overthink this. And say that it's the power and presence of Jesus. That when Jesus calls you, you can't help but respond and answer. And although I believe Jesus had that power to do that, he is God after all, I don't believe that that's what's happening in this moment, in this story. In fact, the reality is that as Jesus called each disciple, something very profound is happening. Revolutionary, really. And I believe the key to understanding why it happened the way it did is held and lies in understanding the Jewish educational system in the first century, which I know probably sounds very exciting, but bear with me. A few minutes, it'll all make sense. But I want to take a, give a couple minutes to look back at how education worked and why that's significant to this moment. You see, in the first century, education was extremely important. It was a huge part of Jewish society. In fact, one of the things that distinguished the Hebrew people is that they took great pride in educating their young. Now, back in the first century, only young boys would go to school. Girls were educated at home to varying degrees and would also learn important life skills. But overall, education was extremely huge. In fact, Josephus, the ancient historian, wrote after the time of Jesus, above all else, We pride ourselves on the education of our children. There was also one other ancient rabbi, a professor, a teacher, who wrote it this way. He said, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, but from six upwards, stuff him and fill him with Torah like an ox. The Torah was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, also known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you have to understand, education wasn't considered this luxury or something nice or optional. But it was an act of survival. In fact, if you lost your stories, you lost your community. If you lost your stories, you lost your sense of identity and purpose. And eventually you would lose your God. And the leaders knew it would only take one generation for this to happen. They knew that if they failed to imprint the story of God onto their children, it would take just one generation, and it would be gone, completely gone. So their educational system had three levels to it. And the ultimate goal for every student, the highest level they aspired to reach, the doctorate program, if you will, was to become a rabbi. In fact, it wasn't unlike becoming a Navy SEAL in that the level one class was filled with a ton of students, level two 
less students, and by the end, it's a very select few that actually made it all the way through the three levels. So here are the three levels. Here's the very first one, and we'll go through these quickly. But the first level was called the Beit Sefer. Can you say that with me? Beit Sefer, also known as the House of the Book. And students would start school at age six and go through age 10 in the first level. And during that time, they would memorize the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. First five books, memorized perfectly by age 10. In fact, most people in Jesus' time would have memorized the scriptures, boys and girls. It was very common for them to do that. In fact, have you ever noticed in the Bible where Jesus is teaching and he'll quote an Old Testament scripture verse but only say half of it? The reason is he didn't have to say the whole verse. If he just alluded to a certain part of the Old Testament scriptures, people would have known what he was talking about. People memorized the Bible. They knew the Hebrew scriptures. Because memorization was absolutely necessary. Because this little thing called the printing press wouldn't be invented for another 1,400 years. So oral tradition, the telling of the story perfectly time and again was essential. Even as the scrolls were written and the scrolls were read from to the people, memorization was still key. Now, critics might look at that and say, there you go. That proves the Bible has changed over time because people aren't reliable. The story's going to change. Maybe you've heard people say that before. Critics will use the case of the game telephone, right? Where you have seven people, and if you whisper one thing into one person's ear, by the time it gets to the end, the story's completely different. But that's complete opposite of what was happening here. In fact, there was nothing more sacred than God himself than the telling of the story the retelling of it, to saying it not only word for word perfectly, but even the inflections one would use in saying it were exactly the same. So nothing was left to chance or changed. Now, a rabbi was considered the most respected person in the community. They were the best of the best, the brightest, the smartest. They weren't perfect, but they had a good moral compass, and most of all, they loved God and wanted to serve him. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. And not just anyone could become a rabbi. So even by age 10, students were weeding themselves out. And those who didn't make the cut went back home and learned the family business, the family trade. Those who made it went to level 2. And level 2 was called the Beit Telmid. Can you say that with me? Beit Telmid. It's called the Beit Telmid, the house of learning. And from ages 10 to 14, the students would be at this level. And the main thing they would learn is they not only memorized the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, but they'd also begin to internalize what they were reading. So when we see Jesus in the Bible at age 12, and he's in the temple, and he's teaching the the people who have gathered, some of which were rabbis listening to Jesus, and when we read that the rabbis were amazed at what Jesus knew, we know that Jesus was in level two of his studies. And at age of 12, he was internalizing what he knew, and it was astounding the crowds that were listening to Jesus teach. It probably helped slightly that he was a son of God as well, as he internalized it. But that's what we see happening. And by age 14, the few students that remained would send out graduate school applications to rabbis. The equivalent of that. They'd begin applying to different rabbis to study under, to be their Talmudian to be their disciple. 
And every student that remained knew the ultimate goal was this. The goal of the stage of level three was to not only learn what the rabbi knew, but to reflect the rabbi's life. The ultimate goal was to become like the rabbi. And this relationship between rabbi and student was incredibly close. In fact, it was so close that once a rabbi took on a student, the parents of the student, the mother and father, would turn over legal custody to the rabbi. The rabbi would become legally and morally responsible for the conduct and lifestyle of the student. Could you imagine that happening today? My wife's a teacher. I don't know if we'd want to take that on. But could you imagine that today? So let me ask you this question with all that backstory. Do you think the rabbi was careful who he chose to be his disciples? Absolutely. He was very careful. The rabbi looked at every student, and he also looked at clusters of students to see if this classroom of students could work well together, if they could learn what he knew. And they, if they made the cut, they'd move to level three, and it's called the Beit Medrash. Say that with me. Beit Medrash. With authority, Beit Medrash. There you go. And that's called the House of Study. And what the rabbi would do is he'd begin a question to investigate the student. And this could take a really long time. Why? Why would it take a long time? Because what the rabbi was considering is, will this student not only have the capacity to know what I know, but can this student become like I am? And this is the best part. When the rabbi took on a student and figured out this, or believed the student could become like him, what the rabbi would do is he'd call the student, the student would gather his friends and family, his community around him, and the rabbi would say with great, um, great authority, would look at this child and say, come, follow me. And the child would leave his mother, his father, his home, his synagogue, his friends, his family. He'd leave it all behind to follow the rabbi and to devote his life to becoming like the rabbi, to do what the rabbi did. And there was this phrase thrown around, which I just love. This phrase was thrown around time and again to these students as they walked down the road, or as a person saw a student coming by and knew they were a student. The blessing was this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you walk so closely to your rabbi that when you arrive at your destination, you're covered in his dust. Okay, that's the end of the backstory. Now, what's the relevance for today? Here comes Jesus at age 30, the time that rabbis take on Talmudians, disciples. Jesus is a rabbi, and he no doubt had applicants applying to become his disciples. There were many bright students that loved God and wanted to serve God and wanted Jesus to mentor them, guaranteed. But where do we find Jesus? He's walking alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he spots fishermen. And why are they fishing? From what we've learned this morning, why are they fishing? Because they didn't make the cut. They weren't good enough. They weren't good enough to, to become disciples. They weren't even applicants. And when it was well past the age that most of these guys would have ever dreamed of hearing these words, Jesus comes and he says, you don't have to apply for this job. 
I know it's not what you expected, but I want you to come follow me, to leave everything behind, to follow me. What Jesus is really saying to them is that I believe that you can become like me. Now you have to understand, some of the disciples never even dreamed of a rabbi approaching them to ask them this question. Other disciples would have longed to have heard those words. They would have longed to have heard them. Guarantee you, some of the original 12 disciples had friends that they were in that circle as their friend was chosen, and they knew they were not. And they both celebrated with their friend that they were going to continue on in school and at the same time grieve that it wouldn't be them. There were disciples that longed to have a rabbi look them in the eye and say in all confidence, I believe that you can become like me. Oh, to be chosen like that, how good that feels. You know, when I first started at at Mariners, uh, just attending Mariners many years ago, I was listening to a message from our senior pastor, Kenton Bishore. Kenton oversees all five of our campuses, and he had young children at the time, four boys. And he shared the story of what he would do during their bedtime routine before they went to sleep. And I remember as a young single guy thinking, if I ever get married and ever have kids, I'm going to do that same thing. And this is what he did. And this is what I've done. So when my kids were young, Austin and Kylie, I'll, I'll use Kylie as an example. I'd go and I'd tuck Kylie into bed, and I'd say, Kylie, you know what? If God came to me and lined up all the little girls in the world, and he said, Mike, or said, Dad, if you can only choose one to be your daughter, what I would do, Kylie, is I'd look at all the girls. I'd see tall ones and short ones, ones with blonde hair and black hair, curly hair and straight hair, big noses, small noses, big lips, small lips, long eyelashes, short eyelashes, green eyes, blue eyes, and I'd go on and on and on, and I'd be poking her in the tummy, she'd be laughing. I'd say, I'd be looking at all these kids, and then I'd see you, and I'd get so excited, and I just would be jumping up and down and say, please, God, please let me choose her. Please give me Kylie. Please, please, please. And Kylie's laughing. And then I'd say, you know what God would say to me? You can have Kylie as your daughter. And then Kylie, what I would do is I'd pick you up in my arms and I'd start twirling you around and Kylie would be laughing and I'd say, she's mine, she's mine, she's mine. And I'd set her back in her bed. I'd tuck her in. And I'd say, Kylie, I would choose you every time. Well, I'd share that story over and over again, night after night. Do you know what happened the nights that I'd forget or I'd miss it? You know, you know what happened, right? She'd be like, Daddy, uh, could you tell me that story again about choosing me? Do you and I ever get tired of, of that, of knowing that we're loved and chosen? You know what? You and I know the sting of rejection. We know what rejection feels like. But to be valued, to be loved, to be believed in, there's no better feeling. And to have a God that loves us that much. You know what? I believe to the degree of which you and I can grasp that truth, that reality, is the degree of which our lives will be changed. The degree of which you and I can really receive the reality of our chosenness, that we are dearly loved children of God, is the degree of which we will find healing in our life. 
that we will find redemption, that we will find impact through our lives in Jesus' name to the degree of which we know that we are loved. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus believes that if he calls us and we respond and say yes, there's so much he can do through our lives to have an impact for his kingdom. And as we look at the disciples, they walked with Jesus for three years, and they were mentored by him. And there were moments the disciples got it, that they had faith and trust. And there were other times they failed miserably. In fact, there's one moment that I think very much encapsulates both of those things, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And it's through Peter, one of the disciples. You might remember the story. It's from Matthew chapter 14. And Jesus has left his disciples. They all get into a boat. They're sailing to the other side of the sea. Halfway through, a storm comes, a really bad storm. The boat starts taking water. For hours, they're trying to bail themselves out. And at utter exhaustion, they know they're going to die. And to make matters worse, they look out on the horizon and they see a ghost walking towards them, like they needed to see that. But as a ghost gets closer, we realize it's not a ghost at all. And Matthew chapter 14, verse 27 says this. It says, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. What a bizarre request. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Why would Peter say that? What in the world makes Peter think that that's a good idea? Because ever since he was a little boy, he was taught that he could become like his rabbi. His rabbi just was able to walk on water. Which maybe the other rabbis probably couldn't do or didn't do. But he saw his rabbi walking on water and he believed he could do that too. Look at verse 29. It says, Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why do you doubt? Now let me ask you, who did Peter lose faith in? It wasn't Jesus. Jesus was doing just fine. What Peter lost faith in was the power of God working through him to do the miraculous. Peter lost faith faith in the, the amazing thing of God working through him to do the miraculous. And you know what? Jesus doesn't get frustrated at Peter in this moment or his disciples um, because they're incompetent. But what Jesus does is as he looks at them, he knows that through the power of the Holy Spirit, of God working in them, they are so capable, and they don't even believe it. They doubt it. Perhaps this morning for each of us, Jesus is saying to us, reminding us that we are chosen that we are deeply loved children of his, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, there's so much that he can do through us. That we are so capable, you and I, and we doubt it. We don't even believe it. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 12. 
And at this point in the Luke's narrative, Jesus has called his disciples. And during this time, other men and women have come to faith in Jesus and have started following him to be his disciples as well. And as we look at this text, Jesus has spent the all night awake in prayer to his father. And when he wakes up in the morning, he gathers 12 of his disciples and he says something quite extraordinary to them. He says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In the Greek, the word apostle means sent one, those who are being sent. And in this moment, Jesus pulls 12 of the disciples aside and gives them a distinction. He says, not only are you disciples, but I am now calling you apostles, the sent ones. And look at the 12 he chose. These were his Navy SEALs that he chose. Look at the 12 he chose. He chooses four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He chooses Levi, also known as Matthew, who's a tax collector, who's despised by the Jewish citizens and just hated and thought of as a traitor because he gouged people of their money. Fishermen, for sure, probably, we know what historians say, the fishermen most likely knew Matthew and hated him, couldn't stand him. So Jesus chose those guys. He chose simple farmers, tradesmen. He even chose a zealot named Simon. Now what a zealot was, zealot was known for two things. One was praying to God, and the other was wielding a sword. And all the zealots believed that when the Messiah came, they were going to overthrow the Roman Empire. So they were soldiers ready for battle. And Jesus chooses one of those guys, even though he has a whole other plan in place. What I want you to hear is there are 12 different people, all different backgrounds, different agendas, issues with each other. And Jesus chooses these guys to be his ambassadors. He chooses these guys to send out his message. These are the people that are going to change the world? Wouldn't it have at least made sense to pick guys that got along together? I mean, these guys are more likely to fight each other than to get together and become world changers. And yet Jesus chooses them. And you know what? Over the next three years of these guys walking with Jesus, most of them eventually started to understand and to get it. In fact, we see after the resurrection... Jesus pulls them together one last time. And do you know what he does? He sends them out. And he says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. He says to the apostles gathered, he says, So when the apostles, the sent ones, were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? That may have been Simon the Zealot leading that question. And Jesus replied, he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set the dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
Jesus says, I am sending you into the world, but it's not just the world you know, but the world you don't, the outside world. And Jesus sends the most unlikely group of young men to rework the way the world works. And Jesus says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, which they're going to get at Pentecost a little further in the story, like they don't even know what they're about to get with the Holy Spirit. And he says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll be witnesses in my name to the ends of the earth. This idea of reshaping the world is an echo of the old, old covenant that God gave to Abraham generations earlier. When God said to Abraham, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to others. My friends, you and I are chosen children of God. We're deeply loved by him. Jesus believes that we can become like him, and he is the one that sends us out. You and I are blessed to be a blessing. Later, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus says something that just sounds utterly crazy. It's not crazy. Well, it's kind of crazy. It's, it's unbelievable what he says. In John 14, verse 12, Jesus says this to his followers, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus says greater things you will do than even I did when I walked the earth. I am a pastor, and I do not believe as much as I want to that I can even do what Jesus did. Can I get an amen? Like, have you thought that? Like, Jesus, for me to even think of doing what you did is too overwhelming. And yet Jesus says even greater things you will do in my name. Try that one on. Oh my goodness. Jesus says the same love that pulsated through his veins, the same mercy that came from his heart, the same wisdom in his head, the same healing that came from Jesus' commands and prayers over sickness, all of that we can do in his name. What if we actually believe that was true? What if you and I actually lived our lives like that is true? What would our lives look like? How would they be different? For me, about three years ago, I was, um, about three years ago, I was at this um, prayer and worship night at someone's house. And this pastor was leading this time. And at the very end, I got in this conversation with this pastor. Never met him before. Really nice guy. And towards the end of our conversation, he said just a, a few words of encouragement that were very specific that I was surprised he even knew because he didn't know me. And I really felt it was God speaking through him. And I thanked him for what he said. And as I was walking away from him, he turned to me. He said, Mike, one last thing. He goes, you have the gift of healing. And do you know what I did? I started laughing. Not like totally laughing, but I smiled like this. Like, no, I don't. And he goes, Mike, no. He goes, it's all over you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. And I was like, thank you. And I just walked away. <laughs> and for the next few days, I'm thinking like, what does that mean? Like, do I have to get like a television show now? And <laughs> like, what do I do with that, you know? So a week later, I totally forget about it, forget about it. Fast forward one year. 
I'm on a, a business trip back in the Midwest in Chicago. And I stopped by a friend's house from high school who I haven't seen in a long time. And he's a missionary who's living with the pastor and his wife at that moment. I only have about an hour to hang out and I've got to leave. Well, I end up staying about five or six hours. I left at one in the morning from their house. And during that time, this pastor started praying for me, getting to know me, saying words that he just felt God put on his heart for me that he could not possibly have known. And it just blew me away. And at the very end, this was like at 12.45 in the morning, he looks at me and says, Mike, do you know that you have the gift of healing? And I smiled. (laughs) And I started to laugh a little bit again. And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, it's all over you. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. I stopped laughing. And the last two years, as I've tried that on, there's two things that have stood out to me. One is this. I never cared that much about prayer ministry. I valued it, but I didn't put my energy towards it. The last two years, I've begun to care deeply about prayer. So maybe you've even seen at this church, Jeff and I and our team talk a lot about helping you grow in your walk with God through prayer. And prayer is a big part of what we do in this place. And secondly, for me personally, how I've changed is I just pray more boldly now. I pray bold prayers that I didn't pray before. You know, when I used to pray, I'd pray cowardly prayers. I'd I'd pray to God when I'd pray and just go, God, if you want to heal such and such, please do, but you probably won't. But if you want to, I know you can, but you you probably won't do it. God, would you help me in this area? Would you bring healing in my life if you want, but you probably don't? I used to pray like that. I'm finding myself now just saying, no, if I'm a child of God, I can pray with authority from heaven down, authority in Jesus' name. Now, I don't know what the results will always be, but I do know I don't need to cower. I can pray boldly. It's this idea of doing the extraordinary. What if it was really true? What if the areas in your life that God's calling you to, God was really in it with you? What would your life look like? What would your walk with God look like? I want to close with two things. Maybe two takeaways for you this morning to consider that I really want you to catch. And the first one is this. Embracing your undeserved chosenness is a key part to being sent out. Embracing your undeserved chosenness is a key part to you being sent out. Jesus has chosen you. Sinful, broken, prone to wander, you. And he has extended his love and grace to you, and he wants you to extend his love and grace to others. He chose you because he loves you. And you know what? This room is filled with a bunch of eclectic, different people with different backgrounds, stories, agendas, political views. The only thing really that would get all of us in a room together, us, is Jesus. Whether we're following Jesus or if you're here today just exploring the Christian faith, only Jesus could bring us all together. But as you look at your chosenness, another thing I want you to think about under this point is this. And here's maybe a crazy thought. What if your weakness, the very thing you're trying to hide and are ashamed of, that you regret, is the very thing that God wants to heal in you and use to help heal other people? 
You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 said these words. And boy, they resonate with me. He says this. And this is, these are Jesus' words. It says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Have you ever considered before that your biggest shameful past history moment, a part of your brokenness, a part of the story that you regret, that you know you've been forgiven of, but it still kind of lingers as a regret, did you know that part of you may very well be the thing that God will use in your life to make the biggest impact? What we know is God uses our strengths. He does. Our gifts, our talents, he does use those things. But boy, does he get the glory when we allow him into those places to both heal us and to work through us as he sends us out. The second point I want you to take away is this, that we are unqualified, but Jesus is not. And when we're tied to Jesus, he is enough. For me in my life, I grew up in the inner city of Milwaukee, extremely poor, raised by a single mother, alcoholic father who was emotionally absent. I was picked on in school most of my elementary education. And most of my life, I have struggled with feeling fearful, striving to be accepted, and wrestling with my identity. And when I came to faith in Jesus Christ in high school, two things, I felt two things. One was I felt the amazing peace of Christ over me in his presence. And at the same time, I felt totally inadequate, like God could never use me. And I'll tell you, it's in that very weakness that I've had the most, I think, kingdom impact is when I've leaned into my story, those broken areas of my life. The Apostle Paul, the sent one, said it this way in 1 Corinthians. He said, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I've worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. Now, was this false humility from Paul? After all, he wrote half the New Testament. He planted a ton of churches. Was he being, um, just pretending he was being humble? Not at all. He knew he had nothing to bring except what God was doing through him. Let me ask you this as we go into our response time right now. How does this hit you this morning? How does this message resonate with you? What's going through your mind as you hear this today? How's God speaking to you? You know, I would imagine there's some of you in here that have been on a track that one might call a, a pretty worldly track. That for much of your life you were concerned about what school you got into, what job you would get, what social circles you travel in. Maybe you've gone through life somewhat alone, doing life alone. And you admire Jesus, but you wouldn't call yourself a disciple. And maybe this morning what God's inviting you into is to just sit with him, to lean into him, to seek him, to think about this idea of being chosen by him and deeply loved by him. For some of you, you've strayed away from God, and maybe there's one repetitive sin in your life that keeps stumbling you up, that keeps, it's like a stronghold, and it keeps this chasm between you and Jesus. 
and you know he's not really far away, but you feel distant because of the sin you just can't get rid of. And maybe this morning God's inviting you to, to confess your sin and receive the forgiveness he has for you. The Bible says that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe this morning God, wants, God does want to forgive you. Maybe this morning God's calling you to receive that forgiveness. You know, for some of you, your imagination stirred this morning. You're starting to imagine what it would be like to be sent out to the world around you, but even beyond what you know. And you're starting to think, what would that look like for me? You know, I know that there's some of you in this room that one year from now, within the next year, you will be on a global mission trip. And you will be there and you'll be wondering as you're in Africa or Uganda or Kenya or Sri Lanka, you'll be there and you'll have been trained by our team, but you'll be there and go, I am so inadequate. I am so out of place. What, Lord, am I doing here? How did I get here? And God's going to use you in ways you never imagined. If you're wondering where to start, you could very well start in your neighborhood, your circle of influence of people you already know. And maybe you don't change a thing about your life, but you look at your life differently. You don't change the routine of your life yet, but you just look at the people in your life differently. You know, as Ethan and the band come forward for our time of response, I want to take us back at the end to the very beginning of this message, and that's this idea of being chosen. And maybe even for this moment, you could close your eyes and just center your hearts. And picture, if you would, maybe a quiet spot. Maybe you're even at the beach right now. Just picture being on the sand, the beach by yourself. There's no one around. And you see the waves crashing in. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and sits next to you. And you just feel the warmth of Jesus' presence wash over you. How does it feel to have Jesus that near? And picture in that moment, you with great courage turn to Jesus and ask him a very courageous question and say, Jesus, what do you think of me? What do you hear Jesus saying to you? Can you picture him saying, you are a beloved child of mine, that I love you, that I care about you, that I would choose you every time. Holy Spirit, in this moment, we pray that you would wash over us. Pray you open our hearts and receive this love that you have for us. God, in these next few moments, would you give us courage, God, to, to sing out to you? Would you give us courage even to come forward and receive prayer? Maybe write a prayer and put in the prayer wall. Lord, we pray that you have your way in this moment. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.